This show may contain offensive material, but that's not what I'm here to talk about. I mean, it's true. I'm here to talk about another show, which might also contain offensive material. It's my live show, Tuesday, November 28th. It's called Pesca on the Potomac. I'll be at the Hamilton Theater in Washington, D.C. An amazing and random lineup of guests, including Chris Malamphy, Alexandra Petri of The Washington Post, Perry Bacon Jr. of 538, actress Holly Twyford of The Stage, and Benjamin Wittes of Lawfare. Hamilton Theater, Tuesday, November 28th. On with the show and perhaps trace amounts of obscenity. It's Friday, November 10th, 2017. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. There's a report in the Wall Street Journal about former National Security Advisor Mike Flynn. The report's gotten some coverage, but it is, to my eyes, the most shocking allegation against a one-time elite government official that I think I have ever heard. Flynn, under contract with Turkey at the time while he was working for Donald Trump during the campaign, he is alleged to have discussed the kidnapping of Recep Erdogan's antagonist, Fatullah Gulan, from Gulan's home in Pennsylvania. And he was going to take the Turkish citizen, though U.S. resident, take him and transport him to a Turkish-controlled island prison. If you don't know the backstory, Gulan is a Muslim fundamentalist who is a powerful force in Turkey, or was. Uh, his followers controlled government offices and the education system. They were once allied with Erdogan, but they now oppose Erdogan. They were behind the coup that Erdogan put down 18 months ago. And of course, Erdogan wants at his rival, but the U.S. government says no. This guy's a legal U.S. resident, and that should be that. Since Turkey is an ally of the U.S., sure, an uncomfortable ally, and Erdogan's a Putin wannabe, it's not illegal to work for Turkey. So Mike Flynn did. But he was a top advisor to Donald Trump, and he was apparently taking meetings where he discussed what amounts to ad hoc extraordinary rendition. This was all put forward on the record months ago by former CIA head James Woolsey. There was some discussion serious discussion of finding some way to move uh, Mr. Gulen uh, out of the United States to Turkey. And now investigator Robert Mueller is looking into it because, as it turns out, you're still not allowed to cook up your own extradition treaty in contravention of U.S. foreign policy. Or else you're going to dog the bounty hunter your way into a cataclysmic international incident. Crazy. Also crazy. And on the show today, the accusations against Louis C.K., confirmed by the comic himself, the ones against Senate candidate Roy Moore, countenanced in the name of Christianity. Who is this Christ you speak of? I'm unfamiliar with his work. Been reading the internet. He's some sort of get out of pedophilia free card. Is that what the name Jesus means? But first, singer-songwriter Loudon Wainwright III is in studio and he brought his guitar, but he never took it out of the case. I never asked him to. I'm thinking to myself, what's this guy, some sort of trained monkey? I mean, he wrote a memoir. He has lots of songs preserved on vinyl or in the digital format. We could just access those as I talk to Loudon Wainwright. (music) 
This episode is brought to you by The Jordan Harbinger Show. You've heard me talk about The Jordan Harbinger Show because it's one of my favorites. He does in-depth interviews with some of the world's most fascinating minds. I can name a few. Barbara Boxer, Anderson Cooper, Michael McFall, the Ukraine or Russia ambassador talking about Ukraine. One I recently listened to was Stanley McChrystal, the general, the former general. And he told uh, an interesting story about revering Robert E. Lee. But then, after having a portrait of him for 40 years, he's a 63-year-old man throwing it in the trash. Because his wife says, you know, what that picture and that man means to you, it doesn't mean to other people, and you have to understand that. And then in the interview, they got around to the point where McChrystal talked about that interview in Rolling Stone magazine that pretty much ended his career, where I got to the desk of Barack Obama, and it had McChrystal saying unflattering things about the war effort and just how he talked to his wife and how they decided not to be bitter and not to wallow in. He could have taken some shots at the process, the reporter or the president at that point, but he didn't. It was just an overall good interview. It was facilitated by Jordan's excellent interview style. Whether Jordan is conducting an interview or giving advice to a listener, you will find something useful that can apply to your own life in every single episode of The Jordan Harbinger Show. That could mean learning how to ask for advice the right way or discovering a little mindset tweak that changes how you see the world. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R, like the first three letters in hard, B-I-N-G-E, as in how you'll want to catch up on all the episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Loudon Wainwright III is a singer-songwriter, as he says. There used to be singers, and there used to be songwriters, and the singers were important, and the songwriters weren't. But, you know, he came along at a really good time for singer-songwriters. And now he's written a book that uh, I could describe it in words, but listen to the title of the book. I think it's called Liner Notes. And then the uh, subtitle is On Parents and Children and Exes and Excess, Death and Decay, and a few of my other favorite things. Hello, Loudon. Thanks for coming in. Good to be here. Now, Whiskers on Kittens does get a shout-out in the book, but not on the title. It must have been hard <laughs> to keep the Whiskers off the kittens Did on we the do the, the, the snowflakes on the eyelashes, too, <laughs> yeah. I hope? Yeah, that's one of those things that sounds good in a song, but, like, really think about it. No one likes that. Ooh, ooh, <laughs> I, I got snow and wetness in my eye. How glorious. I think if we analyze the lyrics of that song, and I wonder how true this is with well-regarded songs, if you really break it down, it's just a whole bunch of stuff that seems nice because it's set within this glorious melody. But really, yes, I do like Whiskers on Kittens, but the rest of this stuff well, is the pretty jejune the, and unacceptable. The melody makes it all worth it. I mean, yeah. John yeah. Coltrane yeah. recorded the song, so it's... <laughs> It wouldn't, it's not a, it's no slouch melody yeah. wise. There's another song like that, the Escape song, Rupert Holmes, the Pina Colada song, Escape. The things he lists are not good things. Uh huh. Making love at midnight, like, why is that better than 1145? And, <laughs> and, uh, isn't there a thing about the dunes? What's the reference to the dunes? I think another making love in the dunes. Making love in the dunes is not good. It's too sandy. Yeah. And similarly, as we talk about other people's songs, Love on the Rocks, Neil yeah. Diamond. Terrible idea. <laughs> I have a song called Love on the Rocks. Yeah? Did you know that? Yeah. No, no. Yeah. How's, it, how's that one go? What's some of the words to that? Uh, you say you've got domestic problems. You should get a load of mine. You know, it's almost fini between my baby and me. <laughs> and I just can't keep from crying. Our love is on the rocks. Our love is on the rocks. That's pretty good. Now, was that a reference to the drinking going on at the time? Well, there was drinking going on at the time, but it was just just one of my many breakup, uh, unrequited, uh, miserable moaning and groaning uh, mm-hmm. numbers. 
do you ever in retrospect go, you know what? It was all worth it since I got that song out of it, even if it was painful at the time. Uh, well, uh, I suppose that's, that's a bit of a compensation. I'm reminded of, you know, who Rosalie Sorrell's, uh, was, he yeah. just recently yeah. passed Contemporary away. Contemporary yeah. of yours. She was a very dramatic, hard living, hard drinking, hard loving, amazing uh, person, uh, singer, songwriter. And you'd ask her how she was and she'd say that, well, Kenny's in prison and, <laughs> This one burned down a building, and I have to have this search. But I wrote three songs this week. <laughs> I it was kind of pathetic, but uh, and yet uh, admirable to a degree. But when you first started out, your songwriting, your hard-lived experience wasn't really hard-lived at all, right? No, I wrote yeah. about being a, a, a guy who grew up in northern Westchester in country club land and yeah. golf courses and stuff. Uh, yeah, I, I suppose I followed the adage of write what you know about. So having not ridden any rails or bailed any cotton, I wrote about, you know, caddying on the golf course. So you, in the book, you talk all about the other Loudon Wainwrights, the Loudon Wainwrights that came before you. Your father was a Loudon Snowden Wainwright? Loudon Snowden Wainwright. That's are you, are you a Loudon I am Snowden the third. Wainwright? Yes, we all three of us are. So your dad was this uh, columnist for Life magazine, and many of his columns are reprinted in the book. And we really not get- many, but a, a number of them. I think there's about five or six. We get we get to know him through the book. Did you read him when he was writing? Was that important to you to always read your dad's work? Uh, I didn't read it. I didn't read him uh, as I should have. I you know I was his his first son, and we had an Oedipal uh, kind of competitive thing going on, and. So I was a chippy young guy and, you know, had an attitude about having a famous father. And he was very famous in the 1960s when I yeah. was a kid. I mean, Life Magazine was probably Everywhere. the biggest circulation. Yeah. He was a prominent columnist. So yeah. he had, yeah. I was Loudon, the son of the famous Loudon, which mm-hmm. was annoying. Mm-hmm. So I didn't appreciate them at the time. And he died in 1988. But about six years ago, I made a point of reading all of his columns. There, were over, there are over 200 of them. And I was knocked out, particularly uh, the personal stuff. You know, there was political current events stuff, but the, you know, about having to put the dog down or the family fire or seeing his mother in a nursing home. That personal stuff really got to me. So now I'm a fan. And, and as I say in the book, you know, he's kind of riding shotgun. He's, he's, he's in the book. There's about five or six of his yeah. pieces in there. You are well-known and well-regarded for the personal stuff. I mean, people love you for the personal stuff and the honesty. I think there was a different – look, it was a different time and he was writing for a different audience and there were lots of uh, proscriptions on how honest he could be. Also how honest he wanted to be probably from his background. But do you take it as – when you read this stuff – did you take it as him being as forthright in his form as you try to be in yours? Yeah, I think I think considering his generation and the fact that he was writing with a, for a very mainstream, almost right of center magazine, Life oh, Magazine. Yeah, yeah. You know, but and yet, was suspicious of Eisenhower. Just yeah, to, yeah, yeah. But his writing has a confessional tone to it. Again, with the personal stuff, you know, and he shows the reader uh, himself, which is something that that I do when I write a lot of my songs or try to do anyway. 
so in the book, I got to know him. I got to know you. And so your father's flaws among them were alcoholism, if we could call that a flaw, you know, and uh, affairs. But I did tell me if this is crazy. He's from a different time and people weren't really told the right way to be a father. Father, mm-hmm. And I, th- I got the impression that if he, for all his flaws, but also his love of music and what he wanted to fill you with the spirit of if he were from a different time, if he were a father in the modern era, when we kind of told people from his milieu what it meant to be a father, I think he'd come out a lot better than he does, you know, having been born when he was at the turn of the last century. Well, you know, his father died when he, my father, was just 17. So he never worked out any of the stuff with his father. And I think that that was one of his Issues to use a, a word yeah. of today. You know, he was not a um, he was an, an unhappy guy to a degree, which has informed the alcoholism and the promiscuity and and a lot of all that other stuff. So being around that happiness was was difficult. I don't know if he he certainly couldn't have been a Norman Rockwell kind of father because he was he was too smart and funny and hip to go for that. But he was a conflicted, uh, you know, ambivalent, uh, tricky guy. Talented, funny, charming, and a very good writer. Don't you think your kids will say a lot of that about you? Gee, I hope so. (laughs) (laughs) I think I've read some of them say that about you. (laughs) Uh, They've said so much about me, and I've said a bit about them. But, um, you know, my father's been dead for... uh, 25, more than 25 years, and I, I feel like I'm closer to him now than I ever was. I mean, I'm, I'm a real fan of his work, and I, you know, now that I've been a father, and for God's sake, now I'm a grandfather, I think I can appreciate the difficulty of the job. You write about family a lot in the book, but in your songs. I can't think of another song from a brother to a sister. I mean, some must exist, but yours is the only one that comes to mind. Over your career, have you changed how much you held hold back and how honest or brutally honest you are in songs well i, I don't i don't think so the song that you're talking about the sister song is is uh is a song called uh the picture it's about my sister teddy who's a year younger than i am and, and all it is is a description of a photograph we were sitting outside drawing at a table meant for cards and it must have been in autumn Falling leaves in the front yard With a shoebox full of crayons Full of colors oh so bright In a picture in a plastic frame A snapshot black and white All it is is just describing a picture. So I was literally telling it like it was. And I use description a lot in my songs. It's a journalistic technique, actually. Might have picked it up from my old man. But in terms of, you know, holding back or, or being forthcoming about personal stuff or stuff in general, I, I'm aware of my audience, but I also, you know, want to, again, to use that, tell it like it is. And I, I find that to be um, the best way for me to work. Have you ever written a song where the person who was the subject of the song was upset with you afterwards and that person had a good point? Well, there have been people that have been upset by some of the songs, and mm-hmm. I can I can understand it. Uh, I can understand them being upset, but that's an occupational hazard yeah. about being around, <laughs> being in my life. You know, because I'm my job is to write the best songs I can. Some of my more difficult songs are, 
You know, I, I'm not out to hurt people's feelings, but I'm right. I'm I'm writing about my own feelings and what happened to me. So there when, can be collateral damage. I suppose you could say. I don't know the answer to this, but you were married to uh, a musician. Your son's a musician. Your daughter are they in music? It's very complicated. Yeah, I was me. married to Kate McGarrigal, <laughs> right. who, who and had the great singer-songwriter uh, who worked with her sister, Anna. We have two kids, so Kate's no longer alive, but we, uh, Rufus and Martha are our children. And then I spent nine, lived with Suzy Roach of the Roaches for nine years. And that's a musical family, too. Right, because we have a daughter who's a wonderful singer called yeah. Lucy Wainwright Roach. So there's a lot of, and then I have a fourth daughter who's, who's uh, working out what she's going to be, Alexandra Kelly. But yeah, th- there was a lot of music in the family and performers and guitar cases hanging around and getting on tour buses and you know that that was the lifestyle so all the uh, the Wainwrights and the Wainwright Roaches and McGarrigals. All, McGarrigals all of them how many of them have written songs about you and then when that happens do you have to say well what's good for the goose yeah yeah, yeah if you, you got to if you dish it you got to take it out or it take it you, you can take i don't know whatever that expression is <laughs> No, uh, uh, some of the kids have written some some great songs, and and you know I'm uh, I'm in them. Yeah, have they ever given you an insight through song? Like you figured something out about yourself through the song you heard that might have been about you? Yeah, I mean th- th- you can learn from the songs. I mean, y- and and your reactions to them. Yeah, but uh, can you think of an example? Well, I'm thinking of Rufus's. Rufus has a great song called Dinner at Eight, which is a sad song about our relationship so and it's a good song it's very emotional and well crafted and it works and it's sad and I I feel sad when I hear it but I admire it too I'm gonna break you down and see what you're worth what you're really worth to me I think some of the best songs are about specificity and describing one moment that you remember, like that one dinner. I once heard an interview with uh, Bruce Springsteen. He was talking about in the early part of his career, it was all like grandiosity and broad sweeping ballets. And then he began to think that that's not actually how people experience the world. And so he started writing about single images. And so maybe the fist pumping goes away, but he found that they resonate more when you maybe have a tighter canvas and you're able to be more specific about that. I don't know if you have a similar uh, Well, it also has something to do with how old he was. Yes. You know, when you're 21, you're, you're, fist, you're pumping your fists. And, yeah. And then if you're 40 or 60 or 70, you know, you're writing about <laughs> getting up and having to pee, you know, or some different stuff. At least that's what I do. What, I, about, the sheer, what about the sheer volume of what's pouring out of you? I don't mean go peeing. I mean, well, yeah. <laughs> I mean the songwriting. Yeah, well, that that's that. That also is. I mean, the, yeah. Well, let's let's get eurogenital for a while here. <laughs> you know, it, it, as you get older, it, it. I don't write as many songs as I used to. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but I don't do do a lot of things as much as I used to. However, when it happens, it feels just as good as it ever did. Loudon Wainwright the Third is the author of the book Liner Notes. Thank you, Loudon. Thank you.
And now the spiel. First Woody Allen, then Bill Cosby, and now Louis C.K. Look, I think it's time I switch to prop comics. So we want no prop comic, trunk full of wacky gadgets, has been accused of any sort of misdeed that I know of. By the way, Woody, Cosby, Louis, not just three comics accused of transgressions. And by the way, Louis aren't as bad, though bad, aren't as bad as the other two, of course. But you know, at one time or another, all of those three guys weren't just successful stand-ups. They held the unofficial title of funniest man in America. And if you think about it, that does say something odd about America, doesn't it? But at least the title is unofficial, unlike U.S. Senator. And we'll get back to Louie in a second. But let's just check in on the excuses being made on behalf of Roy Moore. Two Alabama Republican county chairmen said they would vote for Roy Moore, even if the allegations are true. Moore's brother said he's being persecuted just like Jesus. Also the son of Sam, but also Jesus. And Richard Ramirez, the Night Stalker but also Jesus. Let me tell you guys a little story. It's about a guy with some far out ideas. He had long hair, he had sandals, and he had followers who thought he was divine. And this guy was persecuted. He listened to the Beatles wrong and he killed Tate and LaBianca and wrote piggies on the wall. Yeah, Manson, I'm talking about Manson. What do you think I was going for there? Persecuted like Jesus. Alabama's state auditor said, Mary was a teenager and Joseph was an adult carpenter they became parents of Jesus. Why is the word carpenter in that explanation? An adult, that would work well, but he was an adult carpenter. I think you know what I'm saying with the carpenter reference, you know, all bevels and calloused hands and such. And every other carpenter in Alabama is like, could you leave us out of this? Also, to go back to Joseph for a second, father of Jesus, more of a stepfather figure. To be fair, at this point, I think Joseph is fine with being just the stepfather of Jesus, you know, who's apparently head of this pederasty cult. Joseph may appreciate the distancing reached today in his Nazareth home. Joseph said, Jesus, yeah, I knew him as a kid. Kind of a messed up teen. Look, I reached today in his Nazareth home. Joseph said, Jesus, yeah, I knew him as a kid. Kind of a messed up teen, you know, I tried to teach him a craft. He was all like, you're not my real dad. You know how kids are. And he went, got himself arrested, broke his mom's heart. Nah, what are you going to do? Marion County GOP chair David Hall said, actually said this. The other women that they're using to corroborate, number one was 19, one was 17, one was 16. There's nothing wrong with a 30-year-old single male asking a 19-year-old, a 17-year-old, or a 16-year-old out on a date. First of all, he was 32. Second of all, yeah, there is. 16, listen, I don't want to wade in on the tradition and mores of a culture that I do not understand. But here's a rule of thumb. If you're afraid to sneak some booze into the junior prom, not because you're worried about getting kicked off cheerleading, but because your date is assistant district attorney, something is not right. So that is all about the age of consent. Now let's talk about the question of consent. That to me is an interesting aspect of the Louis C.K. story. It's not the most important part of the story. That's his disgusting treatment of women by asking them to watch as he pulled down his pants and masturbated. But asked them. Louis, in an otherwise straightforward statement, did write, These stories are true. At the time, I said to myself what I did was okay because I never showed a woman my dick without asking first, which is also true. It was one exculpatory sentence out of over 20, but I thought about it. It's possible a lawyer told him to put it out there, or maybe he thought that it was important to note that this wasn't without permission. 
And he did go on to say he realized it wasn't a permission given freely necessarily. And to confirm, every woman who was quoted in that Times article did say yes to Louis and then regretted it or didn't really mean it at the time or said no and Louis didn't do it. But just being asked was violation enough. For a few years in this society, we've had this discussion around consent, redefining consent. Emphasizing consent has its benefits for sure. No means no, that apparently isn't going far enough. So a change in emphasis was made, as the California state legislature put it. Now the California legislature has sent to the governor the first law of its kind designed to reduce assaults. It is called the yes means yes law. So no means no, not doing the job. So they said consent is key. Consent conquers all. There was this funny slash instructive video that British police put together that compared consent to making tea. J.K. Rowling retweeted it. It got over 4 million views. Whether it's tea or sex, consent is everything. They even re-recorded the thing in an American-accented version in case you were unpersuaded by a Brit telling you not to rape. Whether it's tea or sex... Consent is everything. Well, consent's not everything. Or maybe in Louis's case, it wasn't actually consent. Because power is something. No one alleges Bill Clinton didn't have consent from Monica Lewinsky. And now, this is controversial among the sex positive. But maybe there are some kinks, which we used to call perversions, that should be squelched outside the context of a very solid relationship. Hey, Far be it from me to say that your libido isn't a full and natural expression of yourself. Though I sometimes do question that. Maybe you got that by my tone. I mean, is it possible that maybe your dick got hard just because your dick got hard? I mean, maybe your kink should be indulged. Maybe it should be worked out in therapy. But I would say there are some predilections that you should not, as a matter of human decency, offer to someone else unless the someone else you're with has your trust And I think you're already intimate with. Yes means yes doesn't do it. The message is more like, think about the consequences of merely asking. Empathize. I don't know that there is a slogan or a video or a rule of thumb for this. But there are some acts that at the earliest are second date material. I don't know. Maybe Dan Savage will call me prudish. I am appointing him sexual ombudsman for this spiel. But if you're a man... Just don't bring up certain requests except with a woman who you know, and I mean no, not suspect, I mean no, is going to be totally okay with the request, even if the answer is no. But for that one sentence that I've been talking about, the Louis apology was sincere, seemed sincere to a lot of people, and I wanted to take it as such. He seems like a guy with a heart and a soul, and of course, an enormous amount of talent and insight. But then again, remember, he's a master manipulator. The core of his art is to get the audience to see him exactly as he wants to be seen. The jokes wouldn't work as well, if at all, if he couldn't achieve that. More so than a lot of other comics, the transcripts of his show's probably wouldn't read as hysterically funny or the scripts of his TV shows, the same thing. It wouldn't read as as great as it is if you didn't know the Louis persona. His skill sets weirdly suited for issuing an apology that seems fresh and sincere and is different from the usual evasions and roteness. It may well be an honest reflection on the man, but realize it's entirely in keeping with his personality. Who's to say about his character? Now, I'm not writing... Louis off is irredeemable or a monster. Some people are doing that. 
And their critique of the apology is, sure, it sounds good once you got caught. My critique's a little bit different, a few degrees different. I'm not saying the apology is inadequate given the gravity of the misdeeds. My point is more like that the transgression actually includes knowing this was out there and doing nothing about it. You know, maybe you stopped the actions. Maybe you attempted to make amends. I'm criticizing knowing it was out there and then passively waiting for another force to intervene. Your accusers, wait, you confirmed it, your victims, you're probably thinking about them if you're Louie. What I did to you can't be undone. All I could do now is apologize. But what you actually could have done is relieve them of the onus of confirming and accusing you. The victimization extends up to forcing these women to be contacted by reporters. And you think the Times reporters were the first ones to make the call. And then, of course, there was re-reporting and there was fact-checking. And even if the women trusted the reporters, they couldn't trust them 100%. They had to take a leap. They had to be worried about how the story would come out. And then even if they were really happy with how the story came out, they had to worry about what the reaction would be. They didn't know if you were going to acknowledge this, if you were going to deny this, if they were going to be pilloried. You know, that's just another small form of victimization that you could have relieved them of. And by the way, if there are other victims out there and they come forward, that shows that Louis hasn't acknowledged all he can and that he's still playing defense. He's selfishly protecting himself more than he's helping victims. That is human. That is imperfect. And that continues to be abusive. That's it for today's show. Pierre Bienname in his first week as just producer learned don't go cheap when it comes to cabinetry and shelving. Use an adult carpenter every time. Mary Wilson, just producer, prefers adult carpenters, it's true, but she has been known to give shots to child masons, cobblers, and silversmiths. Steve Lichtai, executive producer of Slate Podcast, has vowed never to employ the services of a tween machinist. Rule of thumb, you must be 13 to use the welding machine. The gist, we've been working with Turkish and Peruvian government officials to solve our ongoing crisis, but no amount of kidnapping will undo the fundamental truth of our creed. Um, Peru, de Peru, du Peru. And thank you for listening.